I love worshiping, wor- worshiping with y'all. Kids, before you go, I got a question for you. What's brown and sticky? Oh, yes. Yeah, what's brown and sticky? No, a stick. All right, y'all get up out of here. Your teachers are in the back waiting for you. Oh, man, now you know why it's important to pray for my children. Um, but, uh, you know, before, as, as the, the, the kids are leaving, uh, we just like to say a quick breath prayer as they're going. Uh, Lord, would you be with our kids? Would you meet our kids this morning? Would they know more about you now than when they came? Father, also, would they see in their teachers a reflection of your love? So, Father, be with our kids as they go. Um, just, to, you know, to make sure that we are keeping the festivities alive. Do you know the difference between a dude in a tuxedo riding a tricycle and a dude dressed like me riding a bicycle? A tire. Yeah. That's right. Maybe we should pray again. Father, I just ask that, that you would be with us now, that you would open up uh, our hearts to your word. Lord, would you, would you get me out of your way? And Father, as I decrease, Lord, we pray that you would increase in this place. Father, I pray that, that, that you would release the gifts of your spirit and that we would know your love in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we are here in the, in the vineyard. We are in the, the summer of heroes. We're taking a slow walk all summer long through Hebrews chapter 11 to examine how faith is activated in, in those that believe in the living God. Now, I mentioned last week that that word faith is, is a word that, that's been difficult for me, especially when I was a new Christian. It was a very difficult word for me to grasp. Uh, faith as, as a practical concept really was elusive to me. Faith is, you know, is something that, that we're pointed towards. It's something that we're encouraged to operate with. And sometimes we're falsely taught that it's something that we can create as a product of our own work and our own efforts. It's one of the, the frustrations of, of my, uh, my early walk with Jesus when, uh, when I'd be presented with a solution to my problems to just have faith. The frustration of, of hearing, just put your faith in the Lord. I, I knew that that was good advice, but I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how, like, how does all of that stuff work? And so it can become something that, that is uh, just difficult to grasp. So what we're going to see with each step of the journey as we go through this this summer is that, that faith requires relationship. And that also suggests that faith requires community. Now, whether we're talking about faith in each other or faith in God, faith is a product of participation in relationship. It's a product of knowing and being known. And it's also the only requirement for salvation. The only requirement for being in right relationship with God, being in right relationship with each other. We also know, and as we see these heroes of faith as we go through Hebrews 11 together, we know that faith is both intellectual and intuitional. It requires both knowing something about somebody and then allowing that knowledge to create an informed expectation. 
And so faith kind of works on both of those planes, on the intellectual and the intuitional. Our knowledge of, of another is correlated to our ability to have faith in them. That's true of, of any relationship that we have. Our ability to have faith in another is correlated to how much we know that, that, other, that other person. A basic understanding of this is when we allow Scripture to present to us the character of God, the God that offers salvation, and when we know God, when we know this God that offers salvation, the God that, that offers relationship, the God that invites us into participation, into, into his creation, when we begin to know a God that would love us to that degree, then we can begin to trust in the things that he will do, that he will do the things that he said that he's going to do, the things that we know are aligned with his character. So as an example, a starting point for faith is, is something that we can even start with maybe one of the, the best-known uh, passages of Scripture in the world, in John chapter three sixteen. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. When we're talking about faith in God, knowing uh, verse 17 following verse 16 is really important uh, because intellectually we know from this passage that, that God sent Jesus as the sacrifice that would restore relationship between us and the Father. Jesus fulfilled his part of the plan when he died for us on the cross as that substitutionary sacrifice. So the world is saved through him, and we see that believing in this sacrifice is, is both making the, the sacrifice an individual reality, but it's also a demonstration of trusting God to do the things that he says that he would do. He said that he would do that, and then he did that. And so now we're building that intellectual basis for having faith. Now, during one of the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys, it's recorded in the book of Acts, Paul and Silas are in prison, which is a pretty awesome story. It's a different sermon for a different time. But they're sharing the gospel in, in Philippi, and they get arrested and put in prison. And, and after a demonstration of the Lord's power, we see faith take hold. Acts chapter 16 Starting in verse 25, around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Suddenly there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, stop, don't kill yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them, asked, brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of God with him and all who lived in his household. The answer to that question, what must I do to be saved, is clear. What must I do to, to be saved is have faith. To have faith, we build the intellectual knowledge base of God's character, and then we build expectations off of what we know. 
just for good measure, Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2. But God is so rich in mercy. He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you can be saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Faith combines the intellectual, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of what God has done, the knowledge of what God is doing, and then it merges with the intuitional, the formation of expectations on what God will do based on what we know and based on what we've experienced. So that's a long-winded, of saying, a long-winded way of saying you can't create faith on your own. This isn't a product of your own work and effort. This is a product of participation with God that allows us to know who he is, what he's doing, and ultimately experiences love. John 3, Acts 16, Ephesians 2, all can be used as the knowledge that informs that intuition, knowledge of, of who God is, this revealed word of God that demonstrates his character. It allows us to form expectations on how God will interact with us, how God will treat with us, how God will be in relationship with us as individuals and also as a community of believers. We see his activity so far from, from that moment of that ex nihilo creation, creating everything out of nothing, to our point in history today, our point in time, he created. We know he took that action, he created. We also just saw from what we read in Ephesians 2, he created, but he also he chose. He chose us. Individually and collectively, he chose. We also see that he offered salvation. He offered wholeness, healing. He offered a response to chaos that brings order. That is the character, that's the intellectual side of what God has done. The relationship that comes from this is a return to created order as creation was designed. A reality where trust in God leads us to see beyond our short-term needs and into a promise of community where God's will is the lived reality. So trusting God leaves us in a place of submission. A place where we can allow our need to control to become a sacrifice to the living God, to trust Him to be bigger than our circumstances, bigger than what we can see, bigger than the things that we face. We've got two examples from the passage that we consider this summer together. Two examples today uh, presented for, through Abel and Enoch as the first of our heroes of the faith. So we're going to jump into Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 1. 
Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It's the evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that, can't, that can be seen. It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man, and God showed his approval of his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by his example of faith. It was by faith that Enoch had, was taken up to heaven without dying. He disappeared because God took him. For before he was taken up, he was known as a person who pleased God. And it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. These two guys, Abel and Enoch, because of the distance, the historical di distance between us and them, it's easy to forget the fact these are real dudes that really existed. They had real hearts that really beat. They really walked on this earth in the, in the same way that we walk on this earth. Real dudes that really lived. Their lives are offered to us as examples of, re, of a response to what happens in life that demonstrates faith in God. They responded to life, and that response demonstrates faith in God. Their intellect allowed them to know God based on his actions, and they intuited, intuited, intuited. Ashley, is that a word? Intuited? Nice. They intuited what they could expect off of that, that knowledge, the knowing of God. This reality leads to the, to the common thread between these two men, and it reflects faith. The, two, the common thread between these two men that demonstrates their faith ultimately is that they worshiped. What we see from Abel and Enoch is worship of God. Their intellect, their knowledge leads them to worship because they know who God truly is. They've experienced the living God, and that led them to the place of worship. Faith led Abel to give offerings to God, and faith led Enoch to be raptured to God because his life pleased the Lord. Now, Abel's life is often, I mean, it's really hard to, to tell the story of, of Abel without that intertwining of the story of his brother Cain. But here, the writer of Hebrews barely mentions Cain. He, he mentions Cain in passing almost. But we don't see the other side of, of Abel with a presentation of the story of Cain. And I think one reason that we can infer is, is that it's tied back to, to some of the verses that we considered at the beginning of this message, that righteousness with God comes through faith rather than behavior. And we see faith with Abel and behavior with Cain. The story of Abel is found in Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel being the first sons of Adam and Eve, they were born after Adam and Eve had fallen into sin, after they were banished from the garden in Eden. But one point to remember here, this is a point that, that, that Brad reminded me of this week speaks to the actions of God 
It speaks to the actions of the God that we are invited to place our faith in. God did not kick Adam and Eve, and by extension, Cain and Abel, out of the garden and then slam the doors behind them. That would kind of signify broken relationship, an ending. Obviously, God is outside of the garden as well. God went with Adam and Eve out of the garden. Now, I know that God is omniscient and omnipresent. He is everywhere, you know, but, but th- this is an important point because he chose to be with Adam and Eve. This God that, that, that faces sin and doesn't deny his presence. That has to be, at least if it's not a starting point, it has to be an early part of building that foundation, the intellectual knowing of God. God left the garden with Adam and Eve. God was with them when they were no longer in the garden. God was with Cain and Abel. God is with us. When we break relationship with God through sin, God follows us out of the garden. We have to hold on to that. God remains present God remains present with his created image bearers. And it's that presence, that relationship, that Abel demonstrates that he has faith in God. Here's the story in Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, With the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later she gave birth to, to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and and be its master. One day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, Where's your brother? Where's Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? We know the answer to Cain's question. So much about this story, about Cain becoming history's first murderer, Abel being the first murdered, There is so much in other sermons for other times that we can pull from this about jealousy, about rage, selfishness, sin, temptation, um, about our duty to each other, answering that question that Cain puts before the Lord. All of that, we we could spend so much time, and there is, that that should be done. But this is about Abel and Abel's faith. The, The writer of Hebrews is only talking about Abel's faith. Faith demonstrated by the offering he makes to God. The text is not explicit about why Cain's offering is rejected. It doesn't clearly say this is why Cain's offering was rejected. All we know is that Abel's was. And so what can we infer by what Abel offered? The description of Abel's offering 
offers clues that point to both faith and worship. Genesis 4 says that Abel presented to God the best portions of the firstborn lambs. Cain presented some of his crops. Abel presented the best that he had, not some of what he had. The contrast helps us with application because one is willing to part with the best of what they had. One is willing to part with that thing that that, that would most assure their survival. The other was just willing to give up some of the things that they had. Now, when we think about offerings, when we think about gifts, when we think about giving back to God, it's important for us to remember that, that God is not relying on us. God was not relying on Cain. He's not relying on Abel. He's not relying on any of us for his sustenance. God does not need us to eat. God does not need Cain's food. He doesn't need Abel's food to eat. So this is not about sustaining God. Our offerings do not sustain God. This is about how God sustains us and how his sustaining us is tied to his promises for us and by extension, how it's tied to God's character. Abel makes his offering out of faith, an act of worship that becomes a model of the heart behind the sacrificial system. His offering, this is not a bribe to God. It's not like a mafia payment to ensure protection. It's not given to keep God from from popping him in the melon with a lightning bolt later. This is not about even keeping God happy. But it is meant to be an authentic representation of created order. An authentic representation of the economy of God that we get to give. Abel knows that that if his faith is in God, he doesn't need to worry about anything else. He doesn't need to worry about, about giving up some of what he has, but making sure that he holds on to something to make sure that he can sustain. He understands that all of creation belongs to God, and that all of creation is sustained by God. Centuries, centuries, centuries after this, Long after this, Jesus would give this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. That's why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food or your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns. For your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? I want to stop for a second before we we consider this, because I I feel like that is a question that that is on some hearts this morning. And so if that is a question that that you have, I would invite you just to remember that. And we get to the the end of this and we have some ministry time, I would just encourage you to come for prayer. If you have that question, if that question is in your heart, like a real question that you would ask, Aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? If you struggle with that answer, I'd invite you to come and deal with that. 
Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautiful as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today, thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. That's true. But this question that Jesus asks is a question that I've dealt with for a lot of my walk with him. Why do you have so little faith? The reason I have so little faith is because I was putting so much more stock into what I could produce, my own efforts, instead of spending time actually getting to know the living God. And what we see from Abel, who knew God, his faith gave him freedom. He can part with things that he otherwise might have thought of as his, because he knows that everything created comes from the Creator, and that means ownership and possessions mean something different to a follower of Jesus. When we are in right relationship with God, ownership and possession means something different. And so, what Abel does with that difference is he makes his stuff available for God, for God's service, in the way that God directs as a practical recognition that all possession, all fortune, everything that we have comes from the Creator. Everything created comes from the Creator. This recognition creates generosity. And generosity is a demonstration of faith. This demonstration of faith is motivated by obedience to God. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. You must decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in a response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, we see gratitude for God's generosity come out. But who am I and who are my people that we could give anything to you? Everything we have has come from you, and we give you only what you first gave us. This idea of of stuff belonging to us, it just, it dissipates when we read that verse. Everything we have comes from you. We can give you only what you first gave us. Everything that we have as an offering was given to us in this economy that we get to give. That generosity also leads to a demonstration of love for others. In 1 John chapter 3, if someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? You know, each Sunday we mention this, that the economy of God works that we get to give. When we say we get to give, this speaks to get in terms of an opportunity, that we get to do something, but also get in terms of receiving things. We get to give. A foundational verse that started with the founding of our church uh, back almost, you know, we're getting close to uh, 
15-year, or I mean, I'm sorry, a 20-year anniversary in 2025, we need to start planning that party. I mean, we party well, but I think a 20-year anniversary needs to be a, a bit of a shindig. But anyway, back to this, a foundational verse, and this is something, too, if you remember, in one of the buildings that we had before this, in the cafe, this was written up, you know, for the price of the drinks in, in the cafe. Matthew 10, chapter 9, or um, Matthew, Matthew 10, verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, cast out demons, and here it is, give as freely as you've received. This foundational verse of, of, of our church, of our, our family, the, the, the part of the, the verses that kind of created this expression of the living God when, when we meet together is, is based on the idea that, that freely we received, and, and as a response to freely receiving, we freely give. The faith of Abel is manifest in his willingness to see everything that he had as coming from God. Therefore, all of it belongs to God. He saw himself as a steward rather than an owner. He operated in freedom. Freedom that comes from understanding that the full resources of the Father are available to his children. The full resources, the storehouses of heaven, are available to God's children. So rather than hoarding, rather than acting with a sense of entitlement, Abel freely gives because Abel understands that he freely got. So when we see our stuff, money, time, energy, possessions, when we see our stuff as ours, we are participating with and creating a competitive economy that reflects the culture of the world rather than the culture of the Father. Competitive economies create a few winners for a time, but even the winners eventually will become losers. Faith is demonstrated when we examine what we have from the position of steward rather than owner. Faith, like Abel's, is further demonstrated when we give back to God what he gave to us, and we trust that that economy will perpetuate. We get, we give. We get, we give. The perpetuation, the, it becomes cyclical. And we know that we don't have to worry about tomorrow because of God's character. We get to give. Our next hero of the faith is an interesting one because there is so little known about him. Two people named Enoch in, in Genesis. The first one is not the one that we're going to talk about today. Uh, he is a son of Cain. He's the namesake of a city that Cain would build, and, and that city would become a place of depravity. The, that, that murderous line that comes from Cain would perpetuate, and, and there was a son of Cain named Enoch. But also, almost as if God is a redemptive God, there's another Enoch, that comes from the line of Seth. And Seth is the son that replaced Abel, um, son of Adam and Eve. And from this line, we have this Enoch. This Enoch was the great, 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 great grandson of Adam and the great grandfather of Noah. Genesis 5 mentions Enoch and what happened to him within the genealogy of all of the descendants of Adam. 
Genesis 5, 18 through 24 says, When Jared was 162 years old, he became the father of Enoch. And after the birth of Enoch, Jared lived another 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Jared lived 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch was 65 years old, he became the father of Methuselah. After the birth of Methuselah, Enoch lived in close fellowship with God for another 300 years. And he had other sons and daughters. Enoch lived 365 years, walking in close fellowship with God. Then one day, he disappeared because God took him. Enoch walked in close fellowship with God. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that this walking in close fellowship with God is a demonstration of faith and that this faith pleased God. Enoch and and Elijah, who we're going to see in a few weeks, are the only two humans that will not experience death. Why? Beyond the fact that, that God is God and he can do God things, did God take him? The only clue we have in the text is, is that it tells us that he walked in close, close fellowship with God. His faith pleased God, and so God took him. That's all we have. The culture, though, is what really makes this stand out as a remarkable story. The culture of Enoch's day would make this walk with God a difficult one. The world of Enoch's day was in chaos. Often we like to think that, that like, there wasn't any more chaos than, than, than right now, like in our time. We don't have giants. Just throw that out there. But if you, if you read here, and this actually will be a link to where we go next week when we look at the next heroes of the faith with Noah and Abraham, it, it just read the, the, the reality of, of the created world that Enoch lived in and the culture that he lived in, this walk was not a, an, an easy one. This is a world in chaos that, that we can only see in, in dramatizations. This is not something that we can experience. This generation, this is several generations after the fall. This is after sin entered the world, after Cain populated cities that became festering pits of depravity, a time that, that was so evil, so evil was this time that it was building towards the judgment of the flood. This was when Enoch was walking in close fellowship with God. A passage that links this this week to next week in our series is is Genesis 6, verse 5, and it says that the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth and saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. That is not a ringing endorsement. This evil is the product of competitive survival. The chaos of selfishness manifests in working to survive and competing with everyone else for survival. This life causes compromise. It forces immorality. It forces immorality as as the survival of one means taking from another. It's a complete break from created order. It's a complete break of a community of stewards. This chaos was the reality that surrounded Enoch, and because Enoch knew God, he chose not to join the chaos. Without further specifics, 
all that we can really glean from the text is that Enoch knew that God exists, which was probably pretty common. That wasn't probably something that just he had during this time, but it was a starting place. He knew that God exists. But he also knew from some kind of an interaction that God cares. And also he knew that God acts. Something in his experience turned him away from competitive survival and towards fellowship with God. Something in his lived experience led him to the place of fellowship. He walked in fellowship with God when the rest of humanity was walking away from God. They walked away because they either lacked the knowledge, that intellectual part of faith, or they they refused to acknowledge that God exists, that God cares, and that God will act. Now, I don't want to take anything away from Enoch. What Enoch did was extraordinary. Obviously so, because it led to him being a human that is with God without passing through death, which is, I think we could probably agree, uh, pretty phenomenal. But for our purposes, it's not that God took him that makes him an example, that makes him a hero of the faith. It's not that God took him that makes him one of the heroes that we celebrate in our Summer of Heroes. His heroic example is that he answered three questions, which means he asked three questions. He asked three questions, and then he applied the answers that he got. At some point in his experience, he asked the question, God, are you real? At some point, looking at his circumstances, looking at the culture around him, after hearing the question, or hearing the answer, God, are you real? He asked, God, do you care? And he asked God, do you act? Do you see what's happening around? Do you respond? Are you real? Do you care? Will you act? Armed with the knowledge that came from exploring those questions, Enoch applied this reality to his relationship with God. And with that, he will walk with God for eternity. And so as we turn back to worship this morning, we see how the story of Enoch and the story of Abel work together in in this intellectual and intuitional faith as we build our knowledge of the character of God and we apply it to the expectations that we can have on God. It all begins with three questions. These three questions are the questions that, that we all at some point are faced with or have faced. God, are you real? God, do you care? God, will you act? Let's pray. Father, as we turn back to worship, would you meet us in those questions? I pray that that the reality of your presence would be felt in the natural now. 
I pray, Father, that, that you'd begin to deal with us. I pray, Father, that for, for those that, that, that are in a place of questions. Father, I pray that peace would come. The questions are okay. Father, for those that are asking, are you real? Would you show yourself? Father, those of us that just want to know if you care, would you wrap your love around us? Father, those of us that are crying out for you to act, we ask that you would. So, Father, as we worship, would you deal with us in these questions? In Jesus' name.